All right. Good evening, everyone. Let's uh, let's begin. So we find ourselves tonight, Baruch Hashem, preparing for Purim. It feels uh, it's an incredible, always an incredible zechus to be able to prepare ourselves properly for a yomtiv. You know, the one thing that we realize in Yiddishkeit is the impact of any experience in life is directly related to how much preparation one goes ahead and puts in. Right? The things that we don't prepare for, generally if you don't prepare for it, the, min- the experience itself is minimized. But the things that we exert ourselves for, the things that we prepare for, are often the things that become the most meaningful and uplifting experiences in life in general. And Yom Tov is often like this as well. You know, what happens so often by Yamim Tovim is that we kind of roll into them. And as we roll into them, we're often busy with a lot of different technical details before Yom Tov. But in terms of the spiritual detail, really preparing ourselves for what the message of the Yom Tov is, for what the impact of the Yom Tov is, what the essence of the Yom Tov is, so often we don't give thought to that until the Yom Tov is upon us. And once the Yom Tov is upon us, we're again busy with so many different details. So it's an incredible zechos to be able to spend a few minutes with a little bit of time before Purim to try to absorb a little bit of the message of this incredibly special day. So I want to begin by thanking our sponsors for tonight's cheer to thank this is a, normally we'd use this as a Tehillim slot. Tonight we're using it as a preemptive slot. So to thank Rivka Schwartzbaum for dedicating the shares as Chusfor Rafur Shalema for Aaron Yosef Ben Chana Miriam to thank Howie and Shabby Friedman and Sandy Hoffman for their sponsorships. We appreciate everyone's generosity and dedication. So let's talk a little bit about Purim. And Purim of course is one of the most unique Yamim Tovim we have. And that's for a variety of reasons. On Purim, first of all, again, the Gemara is fascinating because the Gemara, when it talks about Purim, really looks at Purim as a second Kabbalah Satora. Kimu Vikiblu, that there's a concept of a reacceptance of Torah on Purim. That through the salvation of Purim, the Jewish people emerged with a renewed sense of vigor and dedication to the Ribbon Sha'olam, to his Torah, to his mitzvos. What's ironic about this is that Purim is one of those days where we do things that we never do throughout the year. For example, drink. So the truth is we drink. Many of us drink throughout the year, right? But obviously, again, and we're going to talk about this, right? Not a mitzvah, right? And, and of course, the, the, it, during the rest of the year, the key is always moderation. It's fascinating to see that on Purim, moderation goes out the window. And we're going to talk about that. And the truth is, as we delve into this a little bit, we're going to see the notion, Yiddishkeit is all about moderation. I, 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 often, I often think that one of the most beautiful things about Judaism is the notion that everything could be made holy in the right measurement. Right? Everything could be an experience of the divine if experienced within the right way, within the right framework, and within proper moderation. Yet by Purim, by Purim again, and again we'll, we'll focus a little bit more on drinking in just a little bit. By Purim, the Gemara says, we'll see it later on, a person is obligated to become intoxicated. Intoxication is usually something that is fundamentally frowned on in Judaism. In fact, if you look in Tanakh, Right? Every single story of intoxication never ends well. Something bad always happens. So there's intoxication. What else do we have on Purim that's unique? Can't do it the rest of the year? 
So Shalach Manos, right? Although again, we do kind of, ex- you know, people exchange different things, give gifts. What's incredibly unique is getting dressed up. And in fact, again, it's not just the notion of getting dressed up. The Shulchan Aruch says throughout the entire year, there's a halacha. A man is not permitted to wear women's clothing, and a woman is not permitted to wear man's clothing. That's a halacha. It's a halacha. According to the Sefer Achinuch, it's an Isidar Isa. It's a biblical prohibition. And yet again on Purim, one is permitted to get dressed up, and interestingly enough, there's not even a limitation as to the nature of the costumes that one could wear. The Shukhanarach says, a man could dress up in women's clothing, a woman could dress up in man's clothing, permitted in halacha. Fascinating. And what's even more fascinating is a day that ultimately is supposed to be Kimu Vikiblu, a day that is supposed to be a reacceptance and almost reconnection with Torah, the notion that we're doing things that are so out of bounds, or normally out of bounds, or out of the normative framework, really requires us to examine what is the avoda, What is it that we are supposed to accomplish on Purim? Because let me explain that for just a moment. I think if you ask most people, what are you supposed to accomplish on Purim? What's the answer? What's the answer? Okay, so we often go through the mitzvahs. I'm supposed to hear the Megillah, right? I'm supposed to give Matanos Lev Yonim. I'm supposed to do Mishloach Manos. I'm supposed to have a Suda. So often when we think about what I'm supposed to accomplish on Purim, our focus is on the behavioral aspects of the Yomtev. What I'm supposed to do. What I'm supposed to accomplish. That's true. But every single Yomtev also has a Neshama. Every yomtiv has a soul. Every yomtiv has something in it that is supposed to be a comprehensively cathartic experience. How do you know if you have a good yomtiv? In general, how do you know if you have a good yomtiv? Right? If you have a good, well, perm is a little bit of a different, but in general, how do you know if you have a good yomtiv? Right? If you're different at the end of it than you were at the beginning of it. Right? If, and as, you know, if, if I become a different person, if I emerge from a yuntiv and somehow I am more spiritually refined, I'm more elevated, I am holier to some degree, that's a successful yuntiv. So the question is on Purim, what is our avoda? What are we supposed to do? What's the focus? I want to show you something amazing. Take a look at number one. Again, because Tuesday nights we normally do Tehillim, we'll begin with a pasuk from Tehillim tonight as well. The pasuk in Parak Lam, it says as follows. So David HaMelech writes in chapter 30, literally translated, You have turned my mispeid, you've turned my lamenting, mispeid literally means like eulogizing, you've turned my lamenting into dancing, literally means you've opened my sackcloth, right, and clothed me, girded me, clothed me with simcha. So what's the Pazik talking about? So the Radak says in number two something amazing. Hafaktim is Bidila Machali, writes the Radak. He says, Shaisim is Avil al Nafshim Tovad. So remember, the Radak understands, like so much of Sefer Tehillim, finds itself rooted in David Amalek's experience with Bathsheba. Right? This was the event that forever changed the trajectory of King David's life. And it was the event that he lived in the shadow of for, the, in, for his entire life. Even though HaKadosh Baruch Hu told David HaMelech, he's forgiven. We've spoken about this so many times. Even though Hashem tells David, you're forgiven. And even though Hashem blesses the union of David and Bathsheba, and the proof of that was the fact that Shlomo was chosen to be king, and he's named by Hashem Yedidya, the beloved one of God, David HaMelech forever lives in the shadow of the episode of Bathsheba. Because although God forgave him, most of the people never did. 
Oh, so the people never did. So says the Radak, that's what this Pasuk is referring to. David Amalek says, you know, in the aftermath of the episode of Bathsheba, I never knew if I could, rec- if, could, could I recover. Can I recover? You know, it's interesting. We like to think that we could rebound from every single mistake. But as we get older, we realize you can't. There are certain things from which you never recover. There are certain things from which you cannot pick yourself back up. You know, the Gemara gives examples like this. The Gemara quotes the Pasuk, quotes the Pasuk from Koheles that says, something that is crooked cannot be made straight. So the Gemara says, what's an example of something that is crooked that cannot be made straight? So the Gemara gives an extreme example. The example of a man who has an illicit affair and fathers a child. So a child fathered as a result of an illicit affair, depending on the nature of the affair, could become a mamzer. A mamzer, right? How, how do you undo mamzerus? You can't. You can't. In other words, once a mamzer, always a mamzer, right? That's it. There, there's absolutely no way to undo the halachic status. So the Gemara says that's an example of saying that's, that's bent, that's something that's crooked that cannot be made straight. And it's a very sobering lesson in life. That on one hand, we believe in the power of tshuva, and we believe in the ability, the power of forgiveness, and the ability or the belief that HaKadosh Baruch Hu forgives for everything, but yet we also know in life, there are some things you do that you just can't take back. There are some things that you break that you simply cannot put back together. And that's an overwhelming reality. And so says the Radak something amazing. That Hashem, the David HaMelech is saying, in the aftermath of the episode of Bathsheba, I thought that this was something broken that could not be made straight. I thought that this was it. I thought I could never recover, never be forgiven. So ultimately, but David HaMelech then says about Hashem, you told me through Nasan Hanavi, through the prophet Nasan, that I'm forgiven. We've spoken about this story many times throughout our journey into Hill. And remember again, David Amalek does not come out of the episode with Bathsheba unscathed. He has three punishments as a result of it. One of them is they lose their infant son. Number two, David Amalek becomes sick for a protracted amount of time. And number three, the rebellion from within his household, which becomes the rebellion of, of Shalom. David Amalek recognizes that he will not escape unscathed. But at the end of the day, he realizes that forgiveness is attainable. So this is so overwhelming because Radak says, that's the meaning of the Pasuk. So he says, You took my mourning and you turned it into dancing. What's the mourning? The mourning is when I thought I was forever damned as a result of the episode of Bathsheba. But then you told me forgiveness is attainable. And the moment that I heard that forgiveness was attainable, doesn't mean forgiveness is attainable without difficulty or without sacrifice, without suffering. The road to forgiveness is often paved with much adversity. But I realized that forgiveness is attainable. My lamenting, my sorrow, my grief turned into joy. Rashi in number three says a little bit differently. Rashi says, and get ready for this. Amordechai, Esther, the Haman. Incredible. So Rashi quotes over here the Medrash that says, no, this capital, capital Lamid, this entire capital is all referencing Mordechai, Esther, and Haman. Now we're not going to go through the entire Rashi, but if you skip to the end, Rashi says, Hafachtum Amar Mordechai, 
v'chol Yisrael. Ultimately, again, who said the phrase, who said the phrase, you've ter- who, who said this particular phrase, you've turned my mourning into dancing, you, un- you, you opened my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, who said that? That was Mordechai and Kalal Yisrael at the end of the story when we experienced the salvation of Purim. Okay, hold on to that for just a moment. One more piece on this kapital. Look at number four. The Radak makes an amazing observation. You see, l- let me ask you this question. When you read this Pasuk, specifically the last part, Pitachta Sakiva Tazveni Simcha. Right? What's the image you have in your mind? What's happening with the sackcloth? What's happening with it? It's being ripped off. Right? And what's, and what's being placed on? Simcha, whatever simcha means, right? Everything, right? Pitachta sakiva tazreni simcha. I was wearing sackcloth. Sackcloth represents mourning. So the imagery we have is the sackcloth is removed and is replaced with a garment of joy. Says the Radak, there's only one problem. That if the Pasuk wanted to say that, it should have said, Hiserta saki. You removed my sackcloth. And you clothed me. You took off my sackcloth. That means removal. You removed my sackcloth and you replaced it ultimately with a garment of joy. But it doesn't say that, says the Radak. Instead, what does it say? Pitachta. Pitachta literally means what? You opened. Listen to what the Radak says. He says, Pitachta saki. You opened up my sackcloth, literally with your, with your words. So the Radak says something so strange. He says, what does it mean? Is the sackcloth removed, says the Radak? No. The sackcloth is opened is opened, and a garment of joy is inserted underneath the sackcloth. Fascinating. So up until I saw this, Radak, I always assumed this capital, which we say every single day in davening, always meant you remove the sackcloth, you replace it with simcha. Says Radak, that's not what it means. It means you open the sackcloth, the sackcloth was closed, you open the sackcloth, and then you put an additional garment of simcha underneath my sackcloth. So the question we're going to try to explore, we're going to come back to at the end of this year, is what does this mean? And what does this have to do with Purim? In other words, if we take a look at Rashi in three and four together, remember, leaving the Radak on the side, that the capital is about David HaMelech's kind of reaction to the episode of Batsheva. If we go with number three, Rashi, that ultimately this capital is a reference to the Purim story, and then the Radak telling us that what happens at the end of the Purim story is the sackcloth is not removed, the sackcloth is opened and simcha is placed underneath the sackcloth. What does that mean? So put that on hold for just a little bit. Let's jump into the Megillah. So I want to share with you something. It's, it's always, it's always happened to, I love the Megillah. But what I always love about the Megillah is you would think that after you learn something for a couple of years, you're not going to see anything new. Right? Or you're not going to find anything that you never thought about before. And of course, the beauty of Torah in general is 
It doesn't matter how many times you learn something. There's always not just shivim panim Torah. You know, there's mea panim Torah. There's so many hundreds of dimensions of understanding. So I want to show you something amazing that in the schusa of giving this year tonight, I, I saw literally yesterday. So take a look at number five. So this is in Parak Dalit, Pasik Dalit in the Megillah. So to give you just a little bit of context, the context over here is Haman has convinced Achashverosh to go ahead and pass his decree. Right? He's gone ahead and... He has, he has gone ahead and he's convinced Achashverosh to go ahead and annihilate the Jewish people. Again, there's so much to say just in terms of like the psychological profiles of all of the main characters of the Megillah. It's fascinating to see how the Megillah's Esther itself is a study in human psychology and so many different types of identities and so many different types of people. So Achashverosh, you know, Achashverosh is the typical guy with low self-esteem, right? Inferiority complex. And that's why you see he always sides with the people who are going to build him up most. Built him up most. In fact, amazingly enough, again, not our topic for tonight, but the Malbim highlights the idea that from the beginning of the Miguel, all Achashverosh is trying to do is assert himself as the boss, right? There's, there's a, he just wants that, I'm the man. That, that's all he wants is, I'm the man. In fact, the Malbim makes an amazing observation. If you look at the beginning of the Megillah, remember the whole story with Achashverosh and Vashti, right? Achashverosh is making his party. He wants Vashti to come and make a guest appearance at his party. So he sends a message to Vashti. And the Malbim says something amazing. Every single time Achashverosh refers to Vashti, he calls her Vashti Hamalka. And every single time Vashti responds, she always responds as Hamalka Vashti. So I, you'll so, very often we see this, it doesn't matter. The mob says something amazing. Every single time Achashir spoke to Vashti, you know what he always told you? You know what he always slid in? By the way, you know why you're the queen? You know why you're the queen? Because you married me. I, 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 I made you. I made you. Without me, you're an absolute nothing. And when she responded, you know what she said to him, right? Do you know why you're the king? Right? You're nothing. You're an absolute nothing, right? Not, not good for Shalom Bayes in general, right? But you're, you're, you're an absolute nothing. You were my father's stable boy, right? You're not royalty. I'm, Vashti was royalty. Vashti was the great-granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar. She had, royal, she had all royal blood flowing through her veins. Achashverosh has this constant need to assert himself as someone important. And as we all know, people who always need to proclaim their importance, unfortunately, often suffer from just a very low feeling of self-worth, right? Very low self-esteem. People who are well-adjusted don't need the world to know how great they are. Right? But Achashverosh constantly over and over and over. So Haman builds him up. And therefore, by definition, he gives his, Achashverosh, gives his full allegiance to Haman. Achashverosh willing to annihilate the entire Jewish people. Achashverosh didn't have any negative encounters with the Jewish people. Just this is what Haman wanted. This is what he went with. So now, number five, the decree has gone out. Right? To go ahead and destroy everyone. Destroy every single Jew in every single province. Mordechai hears about this, okay? And he goes and he starts fasting, putting on sackcloth. Number five. So remember again, Esther, Esther is closeted in the palace. And at least at first, she has no idea about the decree. 
So her servants come and tell her about the decree, And Esther, the English translation of here, she became extremely terrified. There's so actually a number of different interpretations of what Vatischalchal means, but we'll go with this for now. She becomes overwhelmingly terrified. And what does she do? You see, concurrently, when she hears about the decree, she also hears that Mordechai is at the gate of the palace wearing sackcloth. Wearing sackcloth. So a number of things happen over here. Esther finds out about the, about the decree. She sends clothing to Mordechai. Sends clothing to Mordechai. Lahalbishes Mordechai. So Mordechai should get dressed. Take off his sackcloth. Mordechai's reaction to the clothing that Esther sends. Velo kibel. Mordechai would not accept it. Mordechai would not accept it. So it struck me. I should say it strikes the Mepharshim. What's happening over here? What's, what's going on in the Megillah in this moment? Right? Esther is a Jewish girl. So Esther understands that when there's a decree against the Jewish people, you daven. You daven. You do, you do, whatever, you do whatever is within your power. So she understands you know, what Mordechai is doing. She also knows Mordechai. So she, she understands that what he's doing is sitting by the gate of the king, right? which is almost like a form of prayer and protest. It's both. Because why is he sitting by the gate of the king? He wants the king to see that he's sitting and mourning because of the decree that the king just delivered against his people. So Esther, but yet Esther wants him to change. Mordechai doesn't want to change. So what's happening over here? So I'm going to show you three mafarshim. Well, actually two approaches that we're then going to combine into one. The al Sheikh number six says something amazing. So the Al-Sheikh is addressing Esther's behavior. Why is Esther sending clothing to Mordechai? So the Al-Sheikh says it's very simple. Esther was essentially communicating to Mordechai, listen, whatever the problem is, we can figure this out. We'll go to the king. I'm the queen. All right, but you should come with me. But of course, you can't come to the king wearing sackcloth. So according to the Al-Sheikh, Esther's being, being very pragmatic. We have a problem. Let's solve it. You know, we spoke about this in a previous year that I think is also often very interesting. That like, sometimes when we encounter crisis, right? You ask a Jew, what do you do in a moment of crisis? So often the reflexive answer is, Pray. But the truth is, it's not entirely correct. When you find yourself in moments of crisis, the first thing you do is try to figure out what can I do to address my crisis? In other words, if I'm standing on the train tracks and there's an oncoming train, I have a problem, right? The answer is not to daven. The answer is not to daven. The answer is ultimately to do what you need to do in order to address your particular issue. So says the Ashk, that's what's happening over here. Esther says, stop. Get changed, right? Put on some normal clothing and come with me to the king and let's talk about this. Let, let's, let's, let's deal with this issue. I'm the second line, number six. So Esther sends clothing for Mordechai to change. So the Alshik says, Esther says, Mordechai, we need to talk. You can't come into the palace looking like that. 
So she sends him clothing, get changed, come here, let's discuss, let's make a strategy, let's figure this out, and then let's move forward. By the way, I just want to point out, the most incredible part of Megillah Sester, the most incredible part of Megillah Sester, is Esther Hamalka begins the story as a young, naive girl. Right? Like a girl like anyone else. And she becomes a master tactician. She, she knows how to manage every single... You know, I want to point out, like, she didn't sign up for leadership classes, right? She wasn't part of a leadership card at the Associated or anywhere else, right? Which is all great. Isn't this absolutely amazing? Absolutely amazing that this young girl who is, again, taken from her home. She did not sign up to be part of this. Taken from her home. Forced into a marriage with Ahasuerus was the Xerxes II. The second most, the, the most powerful man on the face of the civilized earth at that time. Young Jewish girl forced into a marriage with a man she did not want to be with. From a, probably a simple life. And how she knows how to manage Every single crisis exactly the way is nothing short of miraculous. The miracle of the Megillah is not simply the fact that the, that the decree was overturned. It's that ordinary people did dramatically extraordinary things. So in any event, so this is Esther telling Mordechai, get changed, get changed, come to me, let's talk about this, let's make a plan. Yet again, number seven, the Medrash writes, the Medrash writes, but yet Mordechai refuses. Why does Mordechai refuse? So, so, Mordechai doesn't accept the clothing. Why not? Mordechai says, Fascinating. Mordechai said, I'm not leaving the gate, the gate of the palace, until God performs a miracle for me. I'm not leaving until God does a miracle. Kishem Sha'asalari, again, and the Medrash goes on to say, like, other people took this practice as well. So I just want to point out two dramatically different approaches. Esther is being pragmatic. Change your clothing, come here, let's talk, let's strategize. Mordechai saying, see, you have to understand, why, why is Mordechai saying, I'm not, I'm, I'm not leaving until God answers our tefillahs? Mordechai understood that there was something so profound afoot here, that there was something so dramatic and so abnormal that was occurring. You know, sometimes we read this, right? We're familiar with the Megillah, and often the challenge when you read stories that you're familiar with is you don't look at it with a critical eye. But imagine you're reading this story for the first time. It, it, it is the most bizarre story. From the beginning till the end, nothing makes sense. And nothing flows the way you think it's going to flow. Mordechai says the Medrash realizes that something, as they say, you know, you know, something strange is happening over here. Something strange is happening over here. And the truth is, I don't think this is the time for his status. I don't think this is the time for human effort. Esther, I think you're wrong. I don't think this is a time where we go ahead and we invest ourselves, we invest our intellect, or we strategize I think this is a time where we just profoundly throw ourselves on God's mercy. Because there's nothing here that makes sense. There's no play. There's no strategy. There's nothing to do. By the way, I just want to point out, I said before Esther was a master tactician. Do you know what Esther's entire strategy during the Purim story was? Her entire strategy. You can sum it up in one line. It's a very famous strategy. It's called the 
let's play it by ear strategy. There's no plan for the plan. There's no plan for the plan. Where this becomes most apparent is at the end of the Megillah, where Esther invites Haman and Ahasuerus for a party. And the Gemara says, what's your plan? And the Gemara essentially, the Gemara gives a couple of different examples, but the Gemara said essentially what Esther said was, I just hope if I get everyone in one place, something will happen. Something will happen. What, what's going to happen? What's the plan? Again, Esther's plan was the plan. So Mordechai senses this, and Mordechai says, I'm sorry, Esther, this is not the way to deal with this, right? This, this is not what we do right now. At the, at the end of the day, I'm going to stay here to Davin until I get the desired results. Isn't this incredible, right? This is right when the decree comes out. Esther, change your clothing, come to me, let's strategize. Mordechai, no, I'm staying here I'm davening and I'm not moving until we have resolution from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The Malbim in number eight kind of brings these two approaches together. The Malbim says, So again, the Malbim essentially brings the two opinions together. Esther says to Mordechai, we need to talk. We need to make a strategy. We need to create a plan. But you can't come to talk to me unless you change your clothing. So change your clothing. And Mordechai says, at the end of the day, last line number eight, Mordechai said, the best chance we have at salvation is for me to daven. Is for me to daven. So I'm not going to do anything to disrupt the davening now. And by the way, isn't this incredibly profound? Because you begin to see, I, I want to point something out, which is the nature of Megillah Sester. Rabbi Soloveitchik points this out extensively in his essays on Purim, discusses the idea that the profundity of Megillah Sester is, Esther is the first Sefer in Tanakh of the post-prophetic era. There's no Navi, right? There's no prophet. Right? You look at everything before Megillah Sester, and if you had a question, you know, it's hard, we don't think this way because we've been without prophecy for thousands of years. But right in the days of the Nevi'im, if you had a question, what did you do? You, you go to the Navi. You ask the Navi. And if the Navi can answer you, great. If the Navi can't answer you, the Navi will ask God and he'll bring you back the word of God. The profundity of Megillah Sester is it is the first book in the, for, in the post-prophetic era. There's no Navi. There's no one to ask. So what do you do? How do you navigate in the post-prophetic era? How do you navigate? How do you navigate? You figure it out. You try to figure it out. And that's the machlokis over here. Esther says, come, change your clothing. Let's strategize. Let's go to the king. Mordechai says, no. This doesn't require a... This doesn't require a physical response. This requires a spiritual response. Who's right? Right? Who's correct? Again, I want to point out this dynamic, this clash, goes on throughout the Megillah. So according to the Mepharshim, Esther sends the clothing because she wants strategy. Mordechai refuses the clothing because he feels that spirituality is the proper response over here. But take a look at number nine. This is a magnificent piece by the Tzadik Rav Shlomo Rabinovich, who was the Rebbe of Radomsk, lived from 1801 to 1866. He was a great, one of the great Hasidic personalities. So the Rebbe writes something absolutely amazing. He says there's something deeper over here. This is not, again, I mean, it's pretty deep to say that it's a machlokis about what we'll call hishtaglos 
versus ruchnius, human effort versus human spirituality. What is the proper response to crisis? The Rebbe says, I think there's something else that's happening here. Look at this, number nine. He says, Yisod gadol bechovas ha-simcha, sheberochav daite hevina ester miyad, shebevadai shama mordechai bisara kasha umara. Remember, so I'm on the, the right hand column of number nine, about five lines in. So Esther, Esther understood Mordechai's behavior, right? She understood what he was doing. She heard, he, right, he obviously heard about something terrible that was going to occur, right? Even though Esther did not yet know. I mean, by now she knew, but at first she didn't know, but she understood that what Mordechai was doing was the normative reaction to terrible news. Don your sackcloth and begin to daven. So if Esther understood what Mordechai was doing, why did she send him clothing? So listen to what the, listen to what the Tefer Shlomo says. Amnam, Savra Esther, She'ein zo haderech hayeshara she'yavar Adam. Esther thought, see, it's not like what we said before, that Esther disagreed and said, Mordechai, now is not the time for davening, now is the time for strategy. She said, you want to daven, you could daven. I don't think you're davening correctly. I don't think you're davening correctly. What was wrong with Mordechai's davening? Kigam be'es tzora v'tzuka tzarech lahasir es hasak ulehis azer b'midas hasimcha. What Esther was saying to Mordechai is a Jew doesn't daven in sackcloth. You want to daven to God? You want to storm the heavens? You want to besiege the Rebano Shal Olam for salvation? You want to supplicate for some type of miracle? That's fine. The way you move the needle spiritually is with Simcha. Everything a Jew does has to be done with joy, has to be done with happiness. And even when you're in a difficult spot, and even when you're in crisis, and even when circumstances are overwhelming, and apparently, even when there is a decree for total and absolute annihilation, when you approach God, you approach God besimcha. You approach God with joy. We'll explain a little bit more. Virak al simcha efshar mikal So what does this mean, Esther? You have to approach God with joy in every single situation. There's, there's a decree of annihilation, right? It's not just the pshat that Achashverosh closed, you know, the takeout, right? This is, this is annihilation, right? This is annihilation. So what do you mean the simcha? See, Esther understood the only way to navigate out of the complexities of life, the only way to navigate out of the difficult circumstances of life is with simcha. If you don't have simcha, and we'll define that term in just a moment, but if you don't have simcha, if you don't have joy, if you don't have happiness, all you do is spin your wheels. You get nowhere and cannot advance your personalistic spiritual agenda. So what, was, what did Mordechai counter? Ach, Mordechai Mordechai said to Esther, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're absolutely incorrect. Left hand column. Mordechai said, What are you talking about, Simcha? 
We're talking about simcha. This is not a time for simcha. La hashmid, la haragu, la abedes, kola yehudim. The decree is out to annihilate every single man, Jewish, man, man, woman, and child. What do you mean simcha? Now is the time for broken hearts. Now is the time for incredible pain. Now is the time for a feeling of, of almost being downtrodden. It's not for simcha. So watch this. Says the Tiferet Shalom something amazing. Do you know what's happening in Parak Dalad, Pasuk Dalad, Dalad, Dalad? Such a profound dispute. Esther's saying, or Mordechai, you know there's a whole machlokis in the, in the Megillah about the relationship between Mordechai and Esther in general. Right? Was Mordechai her uncle slash surrogate father? Was Mordechai her husband? So whatever it is, there's a close relationship. And Esther says to Mordechai, you're great. What you're doing is beautiful. Keep davening. But you're davening wrong. You're davening wrong. You don't daven with sackcloth. Right? You, you don't daven ultimately out of a state of despair. You want to move the needle? You want to affect change? You want to help us navigate our way out of these complex circumstances? That requires simcha. That requires joy. And Mordechai counters and says, you're out of your mind. You've spent too much time in the pampered life of the palace. No, not everything is simcha. There's a time for simcha, but there's also a time for incredible hurt and heartbreak. And now is a time for hurt and for heartbreak. This is the machlokas. Now, before we get into who's right, and I know this is a women's shear, so I know you've made up your mind already about who's right, right? But, but what I'll mention is as follows. Let's, let's talk about this a little bit. Because what's happening over here in the Tefer Shalom was really something amazing. Because you begin to see now, this is not just a machlokis in the Megillah. You can already begin to see how this is a profound machlokis in life. In life, about like an approach to life. So Mordechai almost lives with the mantra of Shlomo HaMelech in Kohelas, of Lakol Zman Vais. There's a time and a place for everything. And there's a time and a place for simcha. And there's a time and a place for tzara. There's a time and a place to be joyous and happy. And there's a time and a place to be sad, downtrodden, and heartbroken. And you have to know when to, when to draw on each of those emotional reservoirs. Esther, on the other hand, says something amazing. Esther says, without a sense of simcha in life, you cannot get out of the darkest places. See, Esther is not, I'm not disagreeing, Esther says, that sometimes a person is sad. But when you're in that pit of despair, you have to make a choice. Do you want to stay in it? Or do you want to get out of it? So what's really incredibly counterintuitive is how many people choose just to wallow in the pit of despair. And Esther says, don't do that. Don't do that. Get out of it. Extricate yourself from it. How does one extricate themselves from the pit of despair? Simcha. Now let's talk a little bit about what simcha is. So the truth is, we could do a whole shir on simcha, but I'll just highlight to you two simple components of simcha. Aspect number one is the powerful idea of simcha is the ability to see something positive even in the midst of difficulty. Right? Simcha stems from the ability to maintain some level of balanced perspective. See, what often happens in life is that when we encounter adversity, more often than not, what happens? Something negative, right? You see this in children, right? What, what happens in children? Something goes wrong for a child, right? And it could be the smallest thing. And then what happens? What, the sky is falling, 
right? So as adults, we say, come on, that's ridiculous. And then we do the same exact thing, right? So what ends up happening is this happens to us all the time. I encounter adversity and maybe even significant adversity. And that adversity eclipses everything. Now everything is dark. Everything is terrible. Everything is so challenging, right? I find it amazing. Like, you know, something goes wrong for a person in life and they're already, God is already on trial. Because wrong is right. I can't believe, where's God? Where's God? Where's God? What about all the stuff you have? What about all the stuff that's going right? What about all of the brachas? I got it. I'm not minimizing the challenge. But ultimately, simply, because that's what happens. We encounter adversity and suddenly the adversity becomes my entire panoramic vision. All I see is challenge. All I see is difficulty. Simcha, it comes from the ability to maintain proper perspective. Now, proper perspective doesn't mean ignoring the challenge or pretending like it's not a big deal. It is a big deal, but it's not the only thing in my life. It's not the only aspect of my existence. There's good, there's beauty, there's success, there's bracha, there's happiness, there's joy. So the first element of simcha, so Esther, what Esther's saying to Mordechai is, my dear uncle, husband, whatever, whatever he was to her, I'm nervous that when you take this approach, you're going to get swallowed up in the pit of despair. And if you get swallowed up in the pit of despair, what good are you for anyone? Mordechai was one of the leaders of the Jewish people. Esther says, you have to lead. You can't lose yourself in the abyss of hopelessness. You can't lose yourself in your sorrow. You have to lead. And in order to lead, you have to, you have to find a way to lead us out of this darkness. But the only way for you to lead us out of this darkness is for you to first believe that there's something more than darkness. Simcha, the first element of simcha is the ability, or I should say simcha comes. Simcha is the result of a balanced life perspective, of the ability to go ahead and not only see the adversity, but also see the brachos in life as well. And I know that it sounds trite, but just because it sounds trite doesn't mean it's not true. The truest, I don't know if truest is a word, but the truest things in life are the things we already know that people have told us for years and years and years and we've heard it a million times, so we write it off and then one day the light bulb goes off and says, you know what? I heard it for years, I just never paid attention to it. I heard it for years, I just never internalized it. And when I make the decision to internalize those things that I've known for so long, life becomes so much better. Simcha, comes from the ability to maintain proper balance, proper perspective. There's another piece. Rabbi Soloveitchik has a beautiful piece about this in one of his essays on the Megillah. And I, I didn't put it on the sheet, so I'm only going to read to you a section of it. Rabbi Soloveitchik points out something amazing. He says, joy, according to Judaism, is not an emotion or a mood. Moods are passing and superficial. They are not integrated into the personality and they do not express the inner awareness of the personality. Sometimes can pe- people can fall into a depressive mood. This does not mean that their I exist awareness is weakened or undermined. A mood can be due to a smile or a word dropped by an acquaintance or an item read in the paper. A mood can be provoked by any stimulus. So what's simcha? 
What's joy? It's not a mood. And this is so incredibly important because sometimes we look at simcha as an emotional state. If I'm in a good mood, I'm, I, if I'm in a good mood, I'm besimcha. Well, the problem is some of us are really very moody. So if simcha, right, if simcha is dependent on a mood, wow, that means one moment I'm besimcha and the next moment I'm not besimcha. So says Rabbi Soloveitchik, what's simcha? Listen to how profound this is. He says, over in Judaism, speaks of joy. It is a deep-seated experience of joy which expresses itself in a state of being, an existential awareness. That awareness of joy is awareness that one's existence has a purpose, that there is self-fulfillment and commitment to a great objective, that there is meaning to life. One who feels that life is meaningless leads a day-to-day, hand-to-mouth existence, not solely in the economic sense, but in the metaphysical sense too. Such a person can have a lot of fun, says the Rav, but they never experience joy. See, according to Rabbi Soloveitchik, the meaning of joy, the true meaning of simcha, is ultimately, again, knowing that I'm living a life of meaning. Knowing that I'm living a life of purpose, knowing that at the end of the day, there's an awareness that one's existence has purpose. And by the way, this is what Rabbi Nachman, you know, Rabbi Nachman has the, everyone, the famous, famous name of Rabbi Nachman, mitzvah gidola lihios besimcha tamid. Right, so what does that mean? Right, what did the Rebbe mean? And by the way, Rabbi Nachman himself writes about his own struggles with depression, Right? And how Rabbi Nachman had some very dark times in life, difficult times in life. So, what, and first of all, how could any person always be besimcha? But now I understand it. Because if we apply Rabbi Salavechik's definition of simcha to Rabbi Nachman, which is what I think Rabbi Nachman also meant, mitzvah gedol elios besimcha is not talking about a mood. It's not talking about a mood. No one is always in a good mood. Moods change, moods vacillate, moods are like the pendulum on the clock. Mitzvah gedola lios besimcha means it is the greatest mitzvah to be in a state of simcha because I'm constantly living a life of meaning. True simcha is the state, emotional state, when you realize that your life is purposeful, that your, that your existence is meaningful, and that you are here serving some higher Purpose. So now let's go back to Mordechai and Esther. So now again, says it to Farish Shlomo something so beautiful. That here's the Machlokas Mordechai and Esther. It's not simply Machlokas in strategy. It's Machlokas in an approach to Yiddishkeit. Esther is saying to Mordechai, everything has to be simcha. Even when you're heartbroken. Isn't this incredible? You know, it's so contradictory to be a Jew. Only Jews have this notion that even when you're heartbroken, you have to be, you have to be heartbroken b'simcha. Right? Even, even when you're depressed, you have to be depressed b'simcha. Even when you're upset, you have to be upset b'simcha. Esther says everything b'simcha. Everything b'simcha. Because Mordechai, if you don't have simcha, then all you see is annihilation, annihilation, annihilation. And if that's all you see in life, you're useless to us. There is no way you could shepherd us out of the darkness. And number two, Mordechai, I have something else to tell you. This whole decree, the whole annihilation, there's something bigger here. We're part of something bigger. And what we do, and how we respond, and how we act in a time of crisis, by definition shows whether or not we believe that our lives have meaning. So Esther was saying to Mordechai, if you just sit there curled up in the fetal position, by the gate, by the gate of the palace, wearing sackcloth and sobbing. Number one, number one, 
You're not modeling the right behavior. You're allowing the darkness to eclipse everything and you cannot lead the people out of darkness if all you see is darkness. And number two, when you're curled up in that fetal position and give up, what you're essentially saying is, my existence from this point on has no meaning. What I do has no meaning. How I act has no meaning. How I behave, how I conduct myself, there's no deeper meaning to my existence. And so Esther says to Mordechai, you could come to me, you cannot come to me, whatever you want to do, but change your clothing. You want to, you want to pray? Pray like a mensch. You want to daven? Put on some nice clothing. You want to go ahead and slam right bang on the gates of heaven? No problem. Do it besimcha. Because every single thing that a Jew does has to be performed with this, dual, with this duality of simcha associated with it. A sense of pers- balance, perspective for all of the things in life. And number two, ultimately a feeling of ex- what the Rav calls existential awareness. That there is meaning to my life even in the midst of difficult circumstances. So who's right? Mordechai or Esther, who's right? So the Tefer Shlomo makes an amazing observation. Remember, fast forward a little bit. Fast forward a little bit. So remember, again, one of the next stories we have in the Megillah is Balayla hu nadadash nasamelech, right? That night, that faithful night comes. This is already, again, after Esther invited Achashverosh and Haman to the party. Achashverosh can't go ahead and sleep. So remember again, what does he do? He summons his servant to bring his book, his Sefer Zichronos, Read it in front of me. And sure enough, what story does the Sefer HaZikronos open up to? The story of Mordechai foiling the assassination plot of Big Son and Seresh. And it's here that Achajeros realizes, I never rewarded Mordechai. So remember again, you know, you know the story. Right? So he calls it Hama, now good. So what's Mordechai's reward? So remember again, take a look at number 10. What's Mordechai's reward? Vayika Haman es halavush v'es hasos vayal beish es Mordechai. Do you know when the story of salvation begins in the Megillah says to Farah Shlomo? Do you know when? When Mordechai changes his clothing. The first piece of salvation, the first thing Haman does, because remember, in in Perak Dalet, Pasuk Dalet, which was source, source number five, remember, Mordechai doesn't listen to Esther. Right? Esther's trying to push, change your clothing. You have to be besimcha. Mordechai rejects the offer. He thinks she's fundamentally wrong. And then amazing, and he, again, he's still persisting. I'm correct. And then again in number 10, when salvation really kicks into high gear, the first thing that happens is that Mordechai changes his clothing. The first, or I should say, Haman changes Mordechai's clothing. And it says to Ferris Shalom, if you go back up to number 9, he says in the middle of the left-hand paragraph, he says over here, Amnam HaKadosh Baruch Hu Yechriya Shat Tzedek Im Esther Amalka Kinasba Kinasuba Hashkacha Shahaman Yalbish as Mordechai Bebigde Malchus Viachris Lafanov Kacha Yasela Matlaish Ashamela Hafez Bikaro Vayedeze Hispogiga Hamarirus Vinigram Lo Lismach Baschalta de Gula. The Teferashlomo says something amazing. Do you know the first time that Mordechai's mood changes in the entire Megillah? The first time that his mood changes? is when he puts on the royal clothing. That was the first time, says it to Farah Shlomo, that Mordechai feels a glimmer of hope that somehow, some way, this situation is going to turn around. Because Esther was right and he was wrong. 
at the end of the day, can you daven? Now again, the previous machlokas, should you daven, hishtaglos, human effort, okay, that's the machlokas. But at the end of the day, says the Tiferet Shlomo, it is clear, it is clear that Esther is unequivocally right. That whatever you're going through in life, in order to be successful and navigate your way out, you must approach it with a sense of simcha. The twofold simcha, a sense of perspective and a sense of meaning. That no matter what is happening to me in life, this is a meaningful experience visited upon me by the Ribbono Shal Olam that some way, somehow, I will be able to come out of. Says it to Farah Shlomo. That was the message that ultimately Mordechai, excuse me, that Esther was giving to Mordechai. Mordechai rejected, but it is the lesson that is foisted upon Mordechai when ultimately Haman dresses him in different clothing. And now, based on this, you begin to understand the dynamic of Purim. Because the whole Yisod of Purim is to teach us this idea that no matter what, that even if, you, even if you encounter adversity, at the end of the day, you have to approach adversity with simcha. So we begin to understand things. Take a look at number 11. Right? I've mentioned this before. Amarava, Mechayiv Inish Levasume Beporia Adlo Yadar Ben Arham Lebarach Mordechai. Right? So the Gemara says, person is obligated and important to become inebriated until they don't know, di- until they don't know the difference between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordechai. Why? Why? So again, remember, <coughs> excuse me, a simple idea, of course, could be because the entire miracle of Purim took place at the Mishnah, at the party, with the wine celebration, but still intoxication, I think it's a very simple idea. What are the rabbis trying to accomplish by getting you to drink? What are they trying to accomplish? Quick simcha. They just want you to feel happy. Again, I want to go on record. Alcohol is not the path to happiness. But it's a great way to start. In other words, it does not create enduring happiness. And it does not create meaningful happiness. But you know, you know what the Gemara says? You know what Baruch Hu created grapes? It's an incredible Gemara. Actually, I'm sorry, it's a Medrash and Bracious. Why did Hashem create grapes? The Gemara says, Medrash says, to, so to squeeze, to make wine, for a kos shaltan chumen. And do you see the Gemara Masechus Moi Cotton says that in times of the Gemara, after a person would suffer a loss, the first thing that would happen when they came back from the cemetery is they were given a cup of consolation. You know what the cup of consolation was? It was a big cup of wine. A big cup of wine. And says the Medrash, do you know why Hashem created grapes? To create the cup of consolation. Because wine has the ability sometimes to take the edge off things. And sometimes if you're able to take the edge off just a little bit, you're able to begin to allow yourself to experience simcha. Why do Chazal want us to drink on Purim? And, and by the way, not just drink. Drink a lot. Okay, this is not a share on drinking on Purim. There's a whole discussion again, but one thing is clear, which is everyone is agreeing you're drinking more than you normally drink. Why? Because what Chazal want on Purim is for us to feel simcha. Because the entire... But one second, but how can I feel simcha? How can I feel simcha? First of all, first of all, Purim is a work day for many people. So it's not like it's a Shabbos or a Yom Div. This stuff going on. I have to do this. This year it's Erev Shabbos. There's this, there's that. You know what? In life, there's always something. In life, there's always something to make you feel down. There's always something to drag you down, to pull you down. But a Jew has to learn the art 
of finding simcha even amidst the sea of life imperfections. Do you know what the greatest tragedy is? That people think that when, right, how many times in life do you hear people or ourselves talking like this? I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if. So at the end of the day, if you're happy when, or if you're happy if, you're never going to be happy. The Jew says something very simple. I need to be happy now. I need to be happy now. What I need to figure out is how can I become happy now? What do I need to do in order to become happy now? How do I keep my proper perspective? How do I go ahead and feel that there's a sense of meaning even in my compromised circumstances? So Chazal tell us, you could do some crazy stuff on Purim. You need to dress up. You need to dress up, right? Nothing make, nothing puts a smile on your face, right? Then looking at yourself in the mirror, right? Some of us take ourselves very seriously, right? And it's so nice one day out of the year to not take yourself so seriously, right? And if you're one of those people who thinks that getting dressed up is beyond you, don't take yourself so seriously, right? Even, even if whatever you put on, you put on. It's, it's so good. It's so good to be able to look in the mirror and chuckle, it's so good for a couple of minutes or a couple of hours or a day not to take yourself or not to take your life or not to take your circumstances so dramatically seriously. And just to be able to find a little bit of simcha even in a life that is filled with so much challenge. That is the essence ultimately again of Purim. And if we bring this all the way back around, we now understand the Pasuk and Tehillim. Remember again, 53 minutes ago. So we spoke about it again. Remember, we started with the Pasuk in Tehillim. David HaMelech says in Tehillim, So remember again, we saw the approach of the Radak. That what does Pitachta mean? So we always thought, until we saw the Radak, we assumed that what is David HaMelech saying? What is he saying? You remove the sackcloth and clothe me with joy. And the Radak says, no. It actually means what? You open the sackcloth and you put underneath the sackcloth a garment of joy. That's Purim. You see, it's amazing. I, I, men- I think I mention this every single year. Uh, the, the part of the Megillah I find most dramatic is that we finish the Megillah. We're all so happy. We start to sing Shoshanas Yaakov and such a feeling of simcha. And when you think about Purim for just a moment, it's such a beautiful simcha for everyone except the main characters, right? Esther is locked in a marriage that she did not want to be in, locked in a life that she did not want to be in. Especially if you understand that Mordechai and Esther were husband and wife. Mordechai sees his wife married to another man, forever seeing her, but always at a distance. It's tragic. It's a, it, it, if you think about it, it's a tragedy, but it's a salvational tragedy. And that's the dynamic of the Jew. Because life is all about figuring out a way to open up your sackcloth, put the garment of simcha on. Now, I'm not taking off the sackcloth because there's still a lot of adversity. There's still a lot of difficulty. There are still a lot of challenges. But at the end of the day, you have a choice. You could be all sackcloth all the time, or a person can choose to go ahead and open the sackcloth enough to put on the garment of simcha, at least I have my garment of simcha. And by the way, it's interesting, because according to the Radak, 
it's not the sackcloth on the bottom and the simcha on top, right? It's the simcha, it's the simcha closest to my body. It's the simcha closest to me. It's the sackcloth on top. The sackcloth sometimes never comes off. Sometimes the sackcloth just remains. But at the end of the day, the goal is to be able to open up the garment. The goal is to be able to open up the sackcloth and place the garment of simcha inside of it. This is the story of Purim. And ultimately, again, this is the meaning of this Pasuk. Purim teaches us this incredible lesson. The ability to open the sackcloth and put on the garment of simcha. And this we should be zochem, Hashem, to really internalize this lesson. Because I would venture to say, none of us have all sackcloth, and none of us have all simcha. Most of us have some combination of the two. The challenge in life is the ability to not allow the sackcloth to take over, to not allow the sackcloth to dominate, to open up the sackcloth just enough to make a little bit of room in my life just to allow the garment of simcha to come in. And if we could figure out how to really activate this level of simcha, the simcha that comes from proper perspective, from not allowing adversity to overtake everything in my life, and to always maintain a balanced perspective, the simcha that comes from realizing that even when I'm suffering, and even when I'm not running on all cylinders, my life has meaning, my existence has purpose. If we could remember those things, then we'll lead a life of simcha. And the beauty of Purim is the rabbi said, sometimes you need a little bit of help in order to get there. We'll give you the help. Right? You can have a beautiful suuda, drink a little bit, we'll give you the help. Dress up a little bit, don't take yourself so seriously, laugh a little bit, we'll give you the help. You know, Rabbi Nachman writes that Purim is a day of like ridiculous laughter. Because sometimes, and it's amazing, this I'll conclude, you know, sometimes, the Raman talks about this in Hilchos Deos, Sometimes when you have a character trait that you have to correct, the Ramam says, sometimes what you have to do is you have to swing to the other extreme and then ultimately over time come back to what the Ramam calls the Derech Right? This is, you know, this, this is like a per- You could think about this by like in the world of addictions. Right? A person, a person has an alcohol addiction. We'll talk about this on Purim, right? A person has an alcohol addiction. So a person is in, in recovery. In the beginning of recovery, probably it's not a good idea to go anywhere near alcohol. But the truth is, you can't live the rest of your life like that, right? What are you going to do? Is at a certain point in time, a person has to find the way to be around those influences, but still go ahead and maintain their sobriety. So sometimes the pendulum has to swing far the other way to come back. So you know what Purim is? Purim is we swing the pendulum so far in a jocular direction. We, we send it so far in just a light mood way. Because at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is when Purim is over, hopefully the pendulum settles somewhere right in the middle. And hopefully I'm able to live a life of pitachta saki v'ta'azreni simcha. I have the sackcloth, but let me find the strength to open it up a little bit and feel the joy of life. We should be zochem Hashem to experience this on Purim. And we should be zochem Hashem to take that experience with us and allow it to inform the days, the months, the weeks, and the years ahead. Welcome everyone.